0: Amen. Well, you can all be seated. Good morning to those of you who may be new or visiting to us today. We're glad that you're here. My name is Pastor Matt. I serve as the pastor of worship and operations here. Um, And if you are a member of our church family, it's lovely to see you all. As Bernadette reminded us, we are in the fourth Sunday of Lent. We are approaching Holy Week and... uh, Our Scripture this morning is fitting for the season of Lent, and we tried to plan it this way and to get our minds and our hearts uh, into this season of the passion of Christ or the death of Christ as we approach Easter morning, where we will study the passage of the resurrection. It will be a wonderful, wonderful time. And actually, uh, to maybe some of you, this is new news to some of you, we will be doing some baptisms on Easter morning as well. Which is what an incredible uh, way to worship our Lord. Uh, but then, with His regenerative and saving. Um, The regenerative and saving power of his Holy Spirit and those being baptized proclaiming in front of all of you that they want to follow Jesus and they've made a commitment to that and they want to be seen as followers of Jesus to their church family so what an amazing time that will be well let's not jump forward too quickly because this morning we have some difficult words to read this is uh, this is not light material there is death, there is sin, there is betrayal, there's wrath, there's anger this morning. But it's not without hope. So let us open our, uh, our, our Bibles to Matthew 27. We're going to be in the first 26 verses, so I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 27 we're going to kind of be reading a chunk and then talking a little bit reading a chunk talking a little bit so just keep your Bibles out in front of you you can find a Bible in the pew in front of you or open up your app or those old-fashioned paper ones that you can look at as well so um, let me pray now as we begin our time Heavenly Father we I, I just pray for wisdom Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak through me, that these wouldn't be my words, but your words. And Holy Spirit, would you quiet the hearts in this room, would you soften the hearts in this room so that uh, as you communicate with us through your scriptures, because we know that they are holy, ordained words of God, that we would be changed and transformed and would look more like Jesus because we've encountered the living God this morning. Only you can do this for us, so teach us now and help us to draw near to you. Amen. All right, so our central theme this morning, something to jot down at the top of your page if you're note takers, is this. When we deal with sin ourselves, the result is always death and separation from Jesus heavy stuff this morning. When we deal with sin ourselves, the result is always death and separation from Jesus. So I don't want to just skip past this issue of sin or this word of sin, because we throw that term around a lot, and I think sometimes we need to be reminded what it actually means Christians in the room, if you've known Jesus for a very long time, always think about the words that you use when you're talking to your Christian brothers and sisters. Sometimes there's words that we use like fellowship or like the gospel that we have to actually unpack for people. Don't just assume people understand because sometimes it doesn't mean what you think it means, okay? So sin can be defined in a few ways, but plainly, okay, sin is doing things our own way and not God's way. Okay, when we choose ourselves, when we choose our motives, when we choose our desires and our ways over God's, we can, and most of the time are in opposition to God, and we sin. Think about the garden, when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to eat the fruit because they wanted their eyes to be open so that they could understand right and wrong, They ate the fruit. Their way became above God's way and they sinned. So I hope that's clear because we're going to be talking about sin a lot this morning. When sin is not dealt with in our lives, it separates us from, or at least makes less room for Jesus in our hearts. And I want to be clear of what I mean there. If you are saved and forgiven this morning, if Jesus has given you his mercy and his grace and you've accepted that and you are a new creation in him, we still, we are not sinners anymore, but we still struggle with sin throughout our lives, right? When we sin, when that's left unchecked, We actually crowd our souls. We crowd the suitcases of our souls, so to speak, with that sin. And we need to repent and we need to make more room for Christ. If you are not a believer of Jesus Christ today, you are a sinner. You have a debt to pay for the sin that you have committed. And without accepting Jesus' free grace, when that sin is left undealt with, That will lead to eternal consequences of separation from Christ. So as we journey through this passage this morning, I want those things to be clear. As we zoom in at the sin of various characters in this passage, please don't just look at their sin and say, ah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's be introspective and see where we also fail our Lord and Savior. Okay. Ready? All right. We're going to start with uh, a little tidbit from chapter 26, where we left off last week. Um, the end of the chapter here, we see the chief priests, which were a, relig- a religious group. They were seeking a way to condemn Jesus. They were seeking false testimony. They were paying people to come up and, and say uh, lies about who Jesus was so that they could catch him. Chapter 26, 59 to 60 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false testimonies came forward. So the chief priests had a problem. Chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away and del- uh, led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. All right, so we're going to be doing a quick fly-through of the passage, kind of pinpointing a couple things, and then we'll zoom in. OK? So this is the beginning of our fly-through here. So after a long night of conspiracy, the chief priests didn't really have anything. OK? They had. The fact that people came forward and said Jesus claimed that he was God. So that's called blaspheming. They didn't believe that Jesus was God. So this would be called blaspheming. So they had him there. But because they weren't the primary ruling body over occupied um, uh, Israel, which was occupied by Rome. They didn't have the final authority. They had to get Jesus on political grounds to have him executed. Okay, because Pilate the governor didn't really care about the Jews, and he didn't really care about the religion. And so, them saying this guy's a blasphemer wouldn't have meant anything to Pilate. So, therefore, they had to get him on political grounds. This is why they had Jesus bound. A dangerous, violent political prisoner would probably be bound. Just like we see our most violent criminals shackled and handcuffed. Okay, same thing. They wanted Jesus to appear as this violent guy um, that's whipping up Jerusalem into a frenzy. Okay? And so they brought him to Pilate in this way, hoping that they could twist their way and get him to be charged to death. Let's go to verse 3. Then... When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilling what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Okay, so meanwhile, Judas... The betrayer had a change of heart. He knew that he had betrayed Jesus. He knew that he had done wrong. And we are going to spend a lot more time with Judas in a little bit here. But the things that get lost in context when we read Matthew without um, the perspective on the Old Testament that the readers of this text would, would, have, would have understood. Because Matthew is the, very Jew, the more Jewish perspective of the Gospels, writing to the Jewish people. Um, primarily, okay? The things that we might miss in our Western eyes is this. There are three Old Testament connections here, which is kind of fascinating. The 30 pieces of silver that Jesus was sold for goes back to a prophecy in the minor prophet Zechariah. We studied that a couple years ago in chapter 11. Um, also, the second one, Judas hanging himself, is actually a direct quotation from another character. I'm going to try to get his name right, uh, Atheliofel. Who hung himself after betraying none other than King David? We understand, some of us understand the connection of King David and Jesus were in the same. Bloodline. So there's a really interesting connection there. And also the connection from the prophet Jeremiah that Matthew makes for us. So there's, there's a lot of yucky things going on here, but even the bad and the ugly in this story has a purpose and a connection in God's larger story. So let us be encouraged there. Verse 11, let's keep going. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said, do you not hear how many things that they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Okay, so here we see on the stand Jesus. Now think about the significance here. Jesus the Messiah, the one who is said to come and judge all of the world to whom every knee shall bow to him to whom every tongue confess. This Jesus the Messiah is being judged by man. Yet, Jesus is silent to their accusations. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't defend himself. Think about the switch there. God is ultimately judge, yes? But God, in a display of humility, bows before an earthly governor. This ought to remind us, maybe of the Old Testament, a prophet that wrote some words about the coming Messiah. Does anybody know which prophet? Shout it out. Anybody? Come on. Some of you know it. Isaiah, right? Chapter 53. I would encourage you, side note, throughout this season of Lent, if you want to go narrow and deep in a piece of scripture, Isaiah 53. Read it every day, pick it apart, meditate on it, pray it. It's a wonderful passage about our Lord. Isaiah 53, 7 to 9 says what is happening right now in this story. Isaiah says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is happening right now. Jesus' silence here gives us an understanding again between the divide of the religious and the political. Again, Jesus, the the claims they had against Jesus were largely uh, religious and not political. And Jesus' um, statement of, you have said so, it's not a cop out. He knows that Pilate has no frame of understanding who he is as Messiah. In fact, the question that Pilate asks Jesus are you king of the Jews? is similar, but not different. Uh, It's similar, but it's different than if he had, he asked, are you the Messiah? Two different questions. Pilate was asking about his earthly authority, but Jesus authority was heavenly. Yes. And so even the way those, the questions are phrased are showing the divide between the religious and the political and Jesus wasn't going to fill that in for an earthly king at this moment. Okay, let's keep going to 15, verse 15, and we'll finish out, the, uh, finish out the section. So now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, he was sitting on the judgment seat. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Okay, Barabbas. Let's talk about Barabbas here. He was a convicted killer. And Rabble Rouser. Um, and I always had the idea that, isn't it so horrible that the crowd lets Barabbas go, Jesus to the cross? But let's consider who this guy really was. He was a notorious prisoner, but that didn't mean that people hated him. In Mark and Luke, we read that he was an insurrectionist. So what this was, was an anti-Roman rebel who was acting in resistance against Rome. Civil disobedience against the occupier. Now, this isn't just me, okay? But a number of commentaries I read about this passage said he was very much like a Robin Hood type character. I know that totally changes this this picture in our brain of Barabbas to like Robin Hood, you know, but really, if you think about it, he was a hero of the people. He was kicking butt to Rome and killing the Romans, and he was thrown in jail for that. Think about the characters that we praise in TV and movies. They're the ones that are stealing from the rich to help the oppressed, right? now here's another really interesting thing. this gets me like super excited and geeked out here, but what's really interesting here in my study of this passage is that theologians agree that it is very very possible that Barabbas was that was just his surname his last name and actually his name was Jesus Jesus was an extremely common name in that day but there's pretty good historical evidence to to suggest that Barabbas' first name was actually Jesus. So look at how interesting this is. We have Jesus Barabbas and we have Jesus Christ. Now Barabbas means bar, father, Abba. I'm sorry, bar, son, Abba, father. Okay, so we have Jesus, the son of the father or the son of men, Okay? And then we have Jesus Christ, the son of God. Man versus God. Who does the crowd choose? Man. Do you see what's happening here? So very quickly, Pilate literally and figuratively washes his hands of the situation and he says... You take him and sentences him to death. But remember, Jesus was not guilty of any crime that Pilate could get him on. So Pilate is just bringing an innocent man and sending him to the cross. It was the religious leaders who thought they had him on these blaspheming charges and many other religious charges and tried to make him look like a political nuisance that was opposed to the throne. But Pilate saw very clearly that he was an innocent man, but he abdicates his position and he turns Jesus over to be crucified in the place of Barabbas, who is very clearly the one who was charged with treason, which was in fact punishable by death by crucifixion. Do you see what's happening here? A substitutionary death happening during which religious ceremony? Passover. The ceremony that Commemorates the Israelites being saved from the angel of death by the blood of a sacrificed lamb over their doorposts, which we read about in Exodus. Jesus fulfilling in real time this ceremony that had been practiced for centuries. Yet this whole story is showing how when our sin, and our sinful crowd our minds and our hearts and our souls, we will miss Jesus and we will miss the salvation that his death brings to us as our true Passover lamb. Okay, so let us take our final, the final part of our time here to zoom in closely on some of the sins that we see in view in this passage, first we'll start with Judas. What a sad character! Journeyed with Jesus for those three years, but Jesus' sin—not um, Jesus, excuse me—Judas' sin is a sin of conspiring and manipulation. Now, whether Judas. Hoped that Jesus would be killed or not. We don't really know. I tend to think, because we know that there was remorse in Judas, we know that when Judas heard that Jesus was convicted, then he went out and he was sorrowful. So I tend to think that Judas was trying to manipulate Jesus to act in such a way to create some sort of a spark in the powder keg that was Jerusalem. Maybe Judas wanted Jesus to act a little bit more like Barabbas. Again, totally speculating here, but really the crux of his sin is trying to manipulate his way and not God's way. He had not the humility to trust Jesus, but he went on his own way. He, out of greed and out of desire for power, out of desire for his own way, We read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus clearly describes to his disciples what would happen. He says in chapter 8, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, says Mark. But back to Matthew, chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. See to it yourself. That's exactly what he did. He saw to his own sin... Himself, He dealt with it by giving back the money. He didn't want anything to do with the money anymore. He gave it back and he is remorseful, but he doesn't seek forgiveness and reconciliation with Jesus. He tries to make legal restitution. This isn't my money anymore. I closed my browser history and canceled that so no one can see that again, right? To bring it to today. He tries to make legal restitution. This is not my money anymore. It doesn't belong to me. It's gone. Nobody will ever know. But then, dealing with his own guilt, sadly, he takes his own life because he thinks that's the only way. Judas's shame was a worldly shame and a worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We see this today in the character of Judas. Let's move on to look at the high priests. The high priests also deal with sin on their own. Also with A lot of legal restitution. We don't actually see that they have any remorse for what happens. Maybe they did eventually, but we don't see it here in this passage. But similarly to Judas, they dealt with their own sin with the sin of legalism. They did all the right things to clear themselves. They took the money that Judas threw back into the temple. It was blood money. It was money they had paid to Judas to get Jesus anyway. And now they returned. He returned it, but it was unclean. So they knew they couldn't put it back into the treasury. They would definitely be in trouble for that. So they went and they bought a field that they could bury unknown people in. That was actually a legal thing you could do with dirty money, essentially. So they kind of laundered the money. And they said, this isn't ours anymore. We're not guilty anymore. So in the eyes of the law, they were good. But they continued in their conspiracy and sent Jesus, their Savior, to the cross. Then we see Pilate. What a fascinating uh, character Pilate is. There have been books written about Pilate. He's a really interesting person. We don't have the time to look too much at his, his life, but mostly take a look at his sin in this passage, and that is the sin of abdication. The high priests, as I mentioned earlier, don't have the political power to sentence Jesus to death. Only Pilate did. But initially, Pilate didn't buy what the high priests were selling. He didn't see any guilt in Jesus, nor did he really care about any of the religious terms that they had him on. So it was very much in his political power to let Jesus go. It's thought and understood that the three crosses he had made up for two of the other insurrectionists and Barabbas. Because those were the guys that were guilty in Pilate's mind. They were enemies to his throne. Yet he was in so much pressure by the high priests and the crowd that he said, you know what? You guys deal with it. Literally and figuratively washed its hands of the situation. He abdicated. Even when Pilate's wife, who in a dream God spoke to her and said, this guy is innocent. Don't mess with him, let him go. Really interesting. Even even Pilate's wife, and he didn't listen. Now, side note, I found this really interesting. This is totally a side note, gonna get us in a bit of a rabbit trail, okay? But all throughout this passion narrative, who is it? Who, Who are the people that are actually speaking truth and reason in these stories? It's the women. Okay, and I don't mean that to be funny or sensational, but if, if you read this passion narrative, it's the slave girl outside the temple that is saying, Peter, you were with Jesus. I know your accent. You were with him. I know you were. You're a Galilean. Peter says, no, no, I'm not. Yes, you were. You were with him. I saw you. Voice of reason and truth. Pilate's wife. This man is innocent. Don't mess with this. Let him go. Voice of truth and reason. Who was it that told the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead? It was the women at the tomb. People in that society, the women in this society, were largely second class citizens who had very little voice and influence in society. These are the ones in this passion narrative speaking the truth and speaking reason. Just found that really profound. Anyway, let's move on. Finally, the crowd. The crowd in this story. The crowd in this story doesn't show any remorse. Just all fanaticism. They were whipped up into a frenzy. Their sin is that they had misguided passion and furious emotion. I'm not sure they even really knew which end was up. I mean, think of any angry crowd when you watch television and you, and you see riots happening. Very often, it's, it's the loss of self-control and passion and emotion and fury that drive people to do horrible things, like seeking to kill and destroy exactly what they did to our Lord Like I said, it's gonna be easy this morning for us to look at and analyze the sin of others. We can actually say, here's the terms. It's abdication, it's legalism, it's it's unchecked emotion, whatever the sin is. But where do you find yourself in this story? You're there. I'm there. Now, everybody is in a different place in their walk today with Jesus, whether you are a follower of Jesus, who have accepted his salvation for your soul. Maybe, though, you're living in some cyclical or unrepented sin, and that separates you from Jesus in your ability to, with your proximity to him, with your ability to be intimate with Jesus. Jesus. This sin harms you. It it disrupts the desire that Jesus has for an intimate, close relationship with you. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus today and you haven't accepted his salvation, if your sin stays undealt with, you are permanently condemned. And I don't say that flippantly. Flippantly. This is serious. This is about our souls. So where do you find yourself in this story? Are you a manipulator? I totally am, okay? I like I struggle with manipulation. Okay? I've no problem telling you the areas that I struggle with is, is your pastor. I try to, I try to twist situations to work out better for myself, whether it's treating people a certain way so that they treat me a certain way. Or seeing, reading a room and trying to drive it in a different direction. But when we twist to our own way and not God's way, we end up hurting ourselves and others along the way. Do we self-flagellate and do we take punishment in our own hands? By actually harming ourselves when we're already kind of in the dumps? Do we try to look innocent through legalism? Maybe we say we're sorry. We appear to be remorseful. Maybe we even confess to others. But we don't ever have a truly changed heart. Now hear this. Hear this. Confession is not the same as repentance. Repentance. We can confess of our sins, we can say all the things that we've done wrong, but unless our heart changes, we can confess all day. You ever meet somebody like that who loves to air all the horrible things that they are and, oh man, I'm really struggling, but they never actually, they never actually take the next step towards Jesus? It's because they need to have a repentant, contrite heart. Do we push blame on people when we've done wrong? Do we abdicate our responsibility for true reconciliation and true repentance? Do we emotionally and passionately pursue outcomes based on emotions, based on how we feel, based on our anger, and we lose self-control? We've all found ourselves in this story. We've all been guilty of these things, and we all need Jesus' forgiveness. So the transition point here, and we'll finish with this, the, the transition point here is something that the crowd says as Jesus goes away to be crucified. The crowd says what? They say, let his blood be on us and our children. I don't know about you, but the hair on the back of my neck stands up when I hear them say that. I don't know if, I don't know if they understand what they're saying for two reasons first what a horrible thing to say to be to be cursed and responsible for generations for shedding innocent blood however jesus blood be on us and our children isn't that the point of why he came isn't that the point Jesus being turned over to die in the place of a convicted killer, Barabbas. During Passover, Jesus, the one true Passover lamb, slaughtered for the sins of the guilty. The blood that covers us and makes us new and forgives us of our sins. The angel of death passes away those doorposts that are painted by the blood of the lamb. By accepting Jesus' blood, For our sins, death passes over us and we are new and we are free and we are saved and we are forgiven. We are the guilty for whom Jesus died. Whose blood pays for the wrongdoings and saves us from death. Remember our big idea today. When we deal with sin ourselves, the result is always death and separation from Jesus. But when we deal with our sin with Jesus, the result is still death because it's dying to our sin that happens, but the result is more Jesus and more of his life and more of his presence in us. Amen? Come on. When we deal with our sin ourselves, the result is always death and separation from Jesus. But when we deal with our sin with Jesus, the result is still death. We die to ourselves. We die to our sin. And we let in more for Jesus to come in and be our life. If you had any question today about why this matters or does Jesus truly love me enough to take my sin, we see very clearly in the next chapter in Jesus dying on the cross for us. God's plan is, is to save that which was lost, to save whom wandered from him and rejected him and he sends himself in the person of Jesus to live a perfect life and to die and to save us and bring us back Into right relationship with the Father, our Creator, our God. Now, let me say one more time before we finish. I'll have the band come back up. Many of us in this room are followers of Christ and have been made new by the saving blood of Jesus. So please, let us be careful not to say, I'm a sinner, I'm a horrible person, I'm dirty. Yes, but no. Jesus calls you a son or daughter of the Most High. You are clean. You are forgiven. You are free. You are saved. You still sin. We live in a broken world. We still wrestle with this broken world. But if you desire more of Jesus and you desire more of his presence, we must always take stock of what is in the suitcase of our soul. And we need to clean it out so we can make more room for the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is repentance, church. This matters. If you've never done that before, First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Call in the name of Jesus today and be saved. This matters, church. 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 to 20 says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Repent of your sin, church. Give it to him. You might have to dig. And it's going to hurt because what's happening is death inside of you. But it's the right kind. Your sin is dying. That old part of you is being chopped off, cut off. But oh, it's worth it for more Jesus. And I pray that you would know that and seek that. Philippians 2:12 to 13 says, "Therefore, my beloved as, you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." So what are you holding on to today? Maybe that's not easy to answer right now. Maybe it is. Maybe, there's, maybe the Holy Spirit is, is really flaring something inside of you that you need to get rid of today. Where are you trying to deal with your own stuff by yourself? The result of that is robbing you from intimacy with your Savior. So as we come to the table today, we'll see the evidence of a God who cares enough about this, who cares enough to die for you to take away those sins, to clean you, to to give you more of himself. This is a gift. This is my body broken for you. So, as you come to the table this morning, if you need to unload some stuff today. To repent. We actually have a number of um, folks in the back corners. Um, and in the, in the, around the nursing area. Um, there's, there's teams to pray for you. Can you guys just raise your hands so that we kind of know who it is? Don't deal with your sin on your own. Bring it into the light. These people are people that love you and they love Jesus and they've they've been preparing for this throughout the week. And praying for those of us that just need to release some things. God is doing things here in this church. God is moving. Let us repent of our sin. Let us be filled with more of his Holy Spirit so that he can move even faster, even further, with even more joy, with even more fullness of his presence. Do you want that? Let's pursue him today. Let me pray for us and then um, we'll have two songs for communion. Take your time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is in this name that we pray, it is in, it is in this name that we are saved Let us not hold on to our sins any longer, but give them to the gracious and open arms of a Savior that made a way for us. And let us be renewed day by day by the renewal of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.